I want to read to you from Ephesians 6, verse 5, and we'll read through to verse 9. And then we'll pray and we'll jump into this. Paul writes, Bond servants or slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Well, I want to pray, and then we're going to seek to take this apart and understand its meaning for us today. Father, we come before your word. We are, Lord, always aware that, Lord, our minds and hearts, without your grace, Lord, are blind to the truth and unable to receive it. But, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will just begin to speak in the way that you do, gently to our hearts, to help us understand, Lord, how your truth is to work its way into our lives for the glory of your Son, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, our efforts um, of the recent weeks and just before I went away has to, be un- to seek to understand what Paul's teaching was to the family. And the reason why that matters so, so, imp- why it's so important for us as Christians is that becoming a Christian or being a Christian, receiving the truth of the gospel, understanding that you are saved, that you belong to God, is about so much more than just that assurance that that you're, you're safe, that you're going to be with God eternally. It is about that, and that gives us the deepest, most powerful comfort imaginable. There's no fear of death. There's no fear of judgment anymore. So it is about that. But it's about so much more than that. When Christ calls you to be part of his family and part of his kingdom, he immediately wants to begin to rebuild your entire world. And he starts by working in you as an individual. He begins his work of reconfiguring your heart, your desires, your loves, your interests, your passions, your worship. He starts in you. No one is a Christian who hasn't begun to experience that transformation that takes place in the deepest level. You're not who you were. Jesus is changing you. But of course, he doesn't stop there. If Christ is changing you, you're not an atom just flying off in space. You are, you are integral to this world. And so he begins to change your relationships also. The closest ones to you should see some of that profound change within you. And the fragrance and the atmosphere of your home, first of all, will begin to change as Christ brings his rule to your life and to your family. And then, of course, it works out beyond that, that as the gospel reaches more and more people. It's not just you and then your family that's changed, but then society itself can begin to be changed, and ultimately the world has changed. And history vindicates this, that from the first century when the apostles began announcing the reality of forgiveness available in Christ and of his triumph over death by his resurrection from the dead, things have not been the same. And that is the biggest understatement I have ever uttered from this pulpit. The world has been changed by Jesus Christ. And he is interested in transforming your world. And it begins, of course, within you. But immediately the effects are felt around you in everything you do, the places you go, and the people that you relate to. 
your family, your spouse, your, your children when God gives them to you. And of course, ultimately, relationships beyond that as well. So when you pray, as Christians have since Christ, pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. You have to understand that that is an invitation for Jesus to revolutionize you entirely and to revolutionize the world that you touch. It's an invitation for him to come into your life and transform it completely. And there is no Christian who prays that who won't experience something of the Holy Spirit working in them to bring that change. And that is why Paul is writing as he does to the ancient household, the family, as it was. Now, one of the obvious ways, and we need to just understand this, I'm going to just take a bit more time at the beginning here to explain some of the context of what was going on here, because this is a foreign world to us, before we begin to then turn its application to our own hearts. Because one of the obvious ways that the gospel needed to bring transformation in the society that Paul was writing at the time was this area of slavery, The reality in the Roman world, the Roman Empire in which they were all living, that slaves were a very present reality around them. There were many, many slaves. You need to understand a little bit of what was going on there. Just the sheer numbers of people who were slaves at the time. The scholars aren't certain how many there were in the Roman world, but they estimate it was somewhere between a sixth and a third people in the world were slaves at that time, in the Roman world. That's an extraordinary number of people, isn't it? That in any gathering like this, at least a sixth and maybe up to a third of you would be slaves if, you, if we were living in Ephesus at the time. Incredible amount of people. Most of them, it, it was slightly different, of course, from um, some of the more recent slavery we've seen in world history in that it wasn't based on on race, but it was, but people tended to be enslaved because they were prisoners of war. You know that Rome was a conquering empire, and as they conquered nations, and they would often enslave people, especially the soldiers, instead of executing them, turn them into slaves. So the vast majority of people who became slaves were slaves because they were prisoners of war, captured, and then turned into slaves within the households to serve Roman families. A number of them were criminals as well. That when they'd broken the law, they could then end up as slaves as a way to kind of as to, to keep them in order, I suppose. Some of them were simply kidnapped, you know, literally pirates grabbing people on the high seas and then capturing them and selling them as slaves. And many of them as well were, were victims of infant exposure. I told you about this before, but Roman families, because there was no... Um, There was obviously no contraception at the time. If you ended up having more children than you wanted, and especially if those children were girls, it was a very common practice to leave them out on a hillside in order to to either die by being eaten by wild animals, or they might be picked up and then sold into slavery. And of course, the identity of that kid would not be known that that they had been born free. From that point on, they were a slave. And so this is the kind of world in which the Christians began to speak about the lordship of Christ. Most of these slaves did manual work, as you imagine. They went down into the mines where there were no kind of health and safety standards. Many of them would have died down in, in the belly of the earth in mines. Many of them were working in fields doing back-breaking manual labor. But it wasn't as simple as that. One of the strange things you see about the Roman world was that many slaves were 
We're, we're working at every level of society. You might go to visit your doctor, and your doctor was actually a slave, owned by somebody. Or you go to consult an architect about building a new house, and the architect may well have been a slave. Or you buy some craft um, a, or an object or some furniture from the market, and the carpenter or the craftsman may well have been a slave. Or the te- those who were teaching your children may have been slaves. There were, all, there, were, there were slaves at every level of society. Actors on the stage were slaves, many of them. Even prophets, you see that in Acts chapter 16, there's a female, who, a, a girl who's a prophet. She's actually owned by a, her master who's making money from her prophecies. She's a slave prophet. So this is a bizarre world that's completely foreign to us in which slaves were operating at just about every level of society. Some of the, most, the vast majority, poor and powerless, without a doubt. But there were also slaves who grew incredibly wealthy and were very powerful. And the most pow- some of the most powerful people in the empire were the slaves that Caesar himself owned and were part of his household running government and the household of Caesar. So this is slightly strange for us to confront a world that's so un- extraordinarily foreign to us and different from us, where a slave might actually have authority over you as a free person. But this is the world into which Paul writes. And the result, of course, was that slaves were in a sense, the backbone of society in the Roman world and had, had roles at every, every level of society. And of course, what does this mean for the church? It means that as the gospel was preached and people were becoming part of the church family, the numbers of slaves within the church would have been enormous, probably more than the population level, I suspect, because of the gospel's, the gospel's bias to those who were poor and needy. There would have been more slaves in the church than there were in the world. So in any congregation like this, you can imagine, maybe up to half the people were slaves. And that's the world into which Paul's writing. And I want to address a question because I don't think we can really get to the application of this passage for us until we deal with the, the massive problem that confronts us, which is this. Why didn't Paul simply call for an end to it? Why is it that when he's writing to these slaves or bond servants. He's giving them instruction and teaching, but the one thing he's not doing, and even when he addresses the masters, is, is calling for their liberty. Why? And of course, this, is a, this, is a, this may be a, a question that has troubled some of you personally. I know that some of you in this room will, have, will find some of your ancestry, you've descended from, from slaves, not many generations back. And therefore, there's, a, there's an emotional element to that question, as well as an intellectual one. And I think the, the simple answer you have to understand about this, and I think from all the reading I've done, the scholars have agreed on this, that it just wasn't, it wasn't possible. That had to, to call for the liberty and the freeing of slaves in the Roman Empire was, was essentially a kind of treasonous act. It, would have, it was calling for revolution and revolt against Caesar, and the Romans would have crushed the church in a heartbeat. As it was, the church was able to survive and even thrive under, under the, some of the brutality of Roman law for, and then eventually grow and grow and grow. But had that been the message of the New Testament, this must end, the church would, would have been snuffed out within, within a matter of moments. It's interesting to note that if you read the historians, they'll tell you that there's, there's, never been, there's only been one successful slave revolt in the history of the world, and that was on the island of Haiti. Uh, which is in relatively recent history, but every other slave revolt in history was met with brutal response and ultimately the crushing of that revolt. 
And of course, these are Paul's friends. They're people he cares about. They're people going about their daily lives, doing their work, doing their business, getting on with their life and offering their life to Jesus. And of course, there's a revolutionary element to the gospel, but it wasn't through that level of confrontation. You never see that. You don't see Jesus calling for violent revolution. You don't see the apostles working in that way, but they still changed the world. This is the thing you have to understand, of course. When Paul began to preach the gospel, as the apostles did, the truths that they unleashed had such a powerful effect that eventually there was an inevitable way in which the evil structures of the world began to be dissolved, including slavery in the Roman Empire. It just took a little longer. It wasn't that they came with a message of conquest and destruction, but rather that the gospel message itself had potency to reorder the heart and the minds of men and then of society in such a way that eventually the entire institution was transformed and demolished. And I find that a, a wonderful encouragement. How? How did, how did the gospel bring about social justice in the empire? And the answer is that Christ came to preach his love and his acceptance of us all, and that that love and pursuit of us did not have any regard for your worthiness in this world and your status within the gaze of others. In fact, Christ had a preference for the weak. He had a preference for the poor. He had a preference for those who were lowly and who were crushed and who were abused and who were oppressed. And of course, it ought to be the case that wherever the gospel is preached, within, represented within church families, will be a bias towards people who are broken like you and me. Hear what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 3, for example. He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What he meant, of course, was that the things by which we establish our worth in this world, our sense of superiority, the Jew feeling superior to the Greek, the free man feeling superior to the slave, the man feeling superior to the woman, he says that's not how Christ looks at you. And the gospel came in with this extraordinarily revolutionary message that under Christ there's this kind of equality in the sense that Christ regards us as precious individuals in his sight. And as soon as that message was unleashed into the world, you couldn't put it back. You couldn't put the toothpaste back in the tube. They began to bring radical transformation to the world. You've got to contrast this, of course, with the teaching that people heard at the time. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher who'd, who'd, who'd uh, articulated his views on slaves a few centuries earlier, said that basically slaves were equivalent to your farm animals. That was his view. He saw them as less than human. Or he equated them also to the kind of tools you use on the farm. A slave and a plow have, have, have similar kind of status or worth. And even in Roman law, in which the time, age in which Paul was living, a sla- uh, the masters had absolute power and authority over the slaves. So the slaves were dehumanized. They were. And then Paul comes in and he begins writing things like this, that there is neither slave nor free. And this is why... Look, look beneath the surface here in a passage like this and you'll see something that is, that is antagonistic to the spirit of the age. Look at how he addresses the slaves directly. 
The first word he says is, bondservants, slaves, obey your earthly masters. He's not speaking over them as people who are mere property within the family of God. He speaks to them as brothers and sisters in Christ because he regarded them as of equal value and worth. He often calls himself a slave, of course. I'm a slave of Christ was one of Paul's favorite ways of describing himself. Or how he, this passage ends when he says to the people who are masters, he says that there is no partiality with Christ. In other words, Jesus doesn't look, th- look at you through the lens that the world looks at you. Christ looks at you as individuals. There's no partiality with him. Slave or free, it's, ir- it's irrelevant in that sense. Which means that everything that Paul said, as we took apart this letter and understand this, It's profound significance to us that we are adopted in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we are chosen in him, that we become dignified with the the, the reality of being his family. Everything that Paul has said to these believers in Ephesus applied to the slaves in the congregation so that when they entered the room where they were gathered with the family of God, there was no sense in which they had to pay deference to the masters or to the wealthy in which the masters and the wealthy could look down upon them as slaves. They were brothers and sisters in the congregation. This is why John Stott, when he was writing on this passage, he says that the gospel lit a fuse, which at long last led to the explosion that destroyed slavery. It took a while. It took some centuries But once the gospel had been let out, the world couldn't stay the same. I find this so fascinating. You know, as Christians, we're very often, we're impatient to see change in this world. And we want to engage in the kinds of confrontation and challenge that will assert Christ's way over other ways. And of course, I know it's complex. How how are we to go about seeking to change the world and bring about the kind of justice and righteousness that we want to see? Look, I, I think that's a difficult question. But one thing I know from my reading of the New Testament and my understanding of how the gospel changed the Roman world is this, that generally speaking, Christ is on a longer timeline than you and I. His gospel works slowly. It works slowly in you and me, doesn't it? I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember. I'm still deeply frustrated with myself. I wish Jesus would hurry up and change me. But he has this, this, this strange timing, doesn't he, in things? It changes me slowly. He changes... The world around you, slowly, he's changes society. And sometimes you see a regression. I think we've seen that in Western society, that whereas there were certain ways in which it reflected more of the order in the kingdom of God a century ago, we're seeing that diminishing. We're seeing a, a, a kind of a, a reversion back to a kind of pagan way of thinking. But Christ isn't anxious. Jesus is Lord. He knows the end from the beginning. He's Lord over history. He's Lord over you and me. And he's Lord over, he's Lord over the governments of this world. And that instantly relieves us, doesn't it? Imagine the peace that was spoken into the lives of these people, knowing that Christ was now their Lord. Now, this is a difficult issue, and I just want to to leave it there for today. Because I want to really get to the question then. Well, look, we're reading this in the 21st century. And none of you are slaves. Not in any literal sense. So our problem really is this. How do we read this passage and apply it to our, to our own lives right now? And I think the clue comes in the eighth verse. Did you notice this? He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, 
This he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And I take Paul's meaning there to be this, that here in this passage, he articulates some of the most vital Christian principles of how you should think about your engagement in the world of work. And the principles that he's articulated apply to you whether you are a slave or whether you're free. And given that all of you are free, I therefore think that the way in which we read this passage in our world today is to understand that the things that Paul articulates then apply to us in the context of work, in the context of being employees and people who, who are seeking to engage in productive labor in this world. Now, sooner or later, this is an issue that every Christian confronts. How does Jesus redeem and sanctify my work? How does he redeem and sanctify my work? Which seems, you know, for some of you, may seem like it's miles away from, from the kingdom work that Christ is, is doing in this world. Sooner or later, you'll begin to ask massive questions about what is Christ's heart for me in terms of the way I spend my days, my hours, my time, and my talents in the workplace, especially as when you're a grown-up, you know, during your, 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 your years of work, you can spend up to half your waking life engaged with work, perhaps some of you even more. And there, there, can't, be, there can't be a wall, can there, between your faith and your love for Christ and your desire to serve him and this, this necessity that we, we call work, in which, which swallows up so much of your energy and your time and your talents. There can't be a wall between those things so that the one is irrelevant to the other. Any thinking Christian is going to wrestle with that at some point, and they're going to begin to wonder, what is the will of Jesus in terms of the way I think about and relate to and conduct myself in, in terms of my work? So I think this passage speaks to our frustrations. The frustration of feeling like the vast majority of my time is engaged in something that's irrelevant to my faith. Or the frustration of feeling like it's unfulfilling or that it's repetitive or that it's meaningless or that it maybe is pointless for some of you feel that way. I know not all. Some of you may take great meaning in your work and I, I think that's wonderful. What you see here is a way in which I think the scriptures begin to upend our understanding of these things entirely. And this is what I mean. It shows us, first of all, that Christ actually cares about your work. And not necessarily that he's so much interested in what you do for a living. I don't think that that's particularly the focus of what's going on here. Because if you and I, like instinctively, when we think about the question of what should we do with our lives... Many of you will think, well, that there's a gradation of, of value in different types of work. That the, t- the top end of the spectrum is work that's directly involved with Christ's kingdom and the advance of the gospel. And then maybe at the other end of the spectrum is just the kind of pointless, repetitive work that, that seems to make no difference to the world whatsoever. And I think intuitively we create these kinds of gradations. And Paul isn't really interested in the question of what you do. And he doesn't make that an issue as to whether Christ values you or values what you do, values your, your contribution. I think that instantly brings liberty to us. All the agonies. What should I do with my life? Is this work important? Is it valuable? Am I using my time well? All of those agonies, all of those questions. I think you can just breathe for a second. I don't think Jesus even looks at the world in the same way you and I do. You know, when Paul was writing to these slaves, some of them, as I said, were doing incredibly important jobs. 
Some of them were involved in the administration, the functioning of society at the highest levels in government. But others of them, and this was quite a common practice, were professional napkin folders. So they lived in a wealthy home, and that wealthy home would want to host guests and impress their guests. And they would employ a slave whose specialty was folding napkins in elaborate designs to lay out on the dinner table. Now, you know, I like origami like the next man, but, but you could well imagine, couldn't you, that if that was, that was your entire purpose in life, was just to fold napkins, you could begin to question, really, am I contributing anything to this world? And I think that there, there was, you know, the, the fact is, when Paul's writing to these, these people, he's taking in that full spectrum of what people did for, for, their, for their labor, for their service to their masters, and the question of what they did actually recedes into the background, and what, what then comes into the foreground? What is it that, that really presents itself to us here in terms of what Jesus wants in your work? And the answer I want to show you is, has much more to do with your heart. Much more to do with your posture and the question of why. Not the what, but the why that lies behind you engaging in the world of work. What is it that Christ is looking for then in the heart? Well, first of all, let me show you a number of things that come through here. First of all, Jesus wants all of you to develop and foster and grow a servant heart. To see your work as service. And that is the first thing that impacts you when you hit this, this passage. Bond servants, he says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. A little bit further in verse 7, he says, rendering service with a good will. Jesus wants you to have a servant heart. Now, let's just put our mind back into the context again. I want you to imagine with me how difficult this was for these men and women in the first century. This was incredibly difficult for them before they became Christians. Before they became Christians, many many of them would have remembered what it was to be free. Others of them would have been born into slavery, but many of them would have remembered what it was to be free. And they must have felt a rage against the injustice of their situation. Many of them, not all, but many. They must have felt hopelessness and anger and frustration and a desire to resist, in many cases, the will, the instructions, the obligations that were placed upon them. And that's just human nature, right? What happened then when they became Christians? I would suggest to you, I think that got worse. That if they were angry and frustrated at their situation before they met Jesus, I suspect it got even worse after they met Christ. And I'll tell you why. It's because for the first time, the message of the Roman world in which they lived, that their worth was was very small, was drowned out by the loud and clear message in the gospel that they were now sons and daughters of God. Precious in his sight. That they had worth and value in his eyes. And of course, what does that do to you if you're a slave? You remember what it was like at school when you were a kid and you approached that last week of term before the summer holidays and then the last day. And good luck on the teachers trying to get you to do any work on the last day of term, right, before you broke for the holidays because as soon as you smell freedom, you're not listening to the teacher anymore. You know, you were 
you know, if it was my school, we were, we were spitting wads of paper at each other through big biros and all this kind of stuff on the back rows. It was like freedom in the heart. You felt the joy of freedom. We take an example of somebody who, you know, has, has worked a fairly dull, meaningless job for most of their life, and then they, they win the lottery. You know, how often is that, that sense of freedom that the money gives them met with a kind of, a kind of shunning of the old employment, a kind of, you know, up yours type of attitude, because freedom makes you want to resist against any kind of oppression even more, now that you know in your heart, I'm a free person. So it seems to me that the second that these men and women became Christians, instead of, instead of that instinctively making them more humble or more, more willing to, to be good at what they did, I think the very opposite probably was the case, that they suddenly just felt, well, you know, so much for my master. I've got, to, I've got to have a true master in heaven. It's Jesus Christ. Now, I think we have a similar challenge today. It's not the same, of course. But we live in a day and an age in which freedom is probably the great banner of our culture, isn't it? Freedom and equality. The freedom to be you. The freedom to express you. And therefore, what does that do to your, to your attitude and heart to work? If freedom is the great cheer of our, of our culture, it seems to me that what it does is it says, like, work must, must offer something to me. I'm not, I'm not in the workplace to offer something to others. Work has to offer something to me. It's got to offer me enjoyment. It's got to offer me fulfillment. It's got to fulfill my passions. It has to give me the opportunity to shine and to express my gifts and my talents in whatever unique way I offer to this world. Work must do that because I'm a free person. You cannot place obligation on me. Rather, work has an obligation towards me. And ideally, it should make me wealthy in the process. These are the demands we bring to the working life, aren't they? And of course, it's all rooted in, in the kind of gospel of freedom. We're free people, therefore, you know, we're not subservient to anything, anyone, or any demand. And that's why I think people in our day and age find it incredibly hard to submit to the system, the man, the obligations, the responsibilities that work puts upon you, the mortgage, the expectations of others. Because it seems to me that that's voluntarily entering into slavery again. Hang on a second, I, I'm free. And that taints, doesn't it, how you think about work. It, 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 it transforms how you understand your place in the workplace, that you think about work as something that pays back to you rather than you offering it anything. And look this what, what Paul is challenging, I think. I think he's saying to these people, it's not actually about you. You're called to enter into the world and society in which we live as Christians in a posture of submission and service towards others. You want to ask the fundamental purpose of work in this world, it is to serve others. Sometimes that will align with fulfillment, joy, passion, reward. Sometimes it won't. But we should no longer assess the value of our work based on whether it gives us all those things. We should assess it based on the posture of our heart. Are you entering into this world as a servant, remembering what Jesus said about himself, that he, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many? And that's a, that's a total shift, isn't it? Do you think of yourself as a servant? Do you enter the workplace and think, I am here to serve the needs of others? 
It bleeds you of the kind of egoism and the, the need to establish and to compete. It, it bleeds all of that out, doesn't it? And changes how you think about yourself and your orientation towards work. You're a servant. And Christ loves service because he is the ultimate servant. Jesus wants a heart of service. Here's the second thing he wants. He also wants you to foster a heart of sincerity. Now listen, this is something that Paul says in three different ways, which tells you how incredibly important this was for him in terms of just speaking right to the heart, the attitudes of these slaves. Sincerity. He says it explicitly in verse 5. He says, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart. Sincere heart. This word sincere meant without mixture. You know what it's like to have a mixed heart where you appear one way, but actually something else is going on under the surface. There's an insincerity. There's a duplicity in your heart, in your soul. Sincerity meant kind of singleness, focus. It meant that you were, you, there's a very, you're a very simple person. What you see is what you get. There's no faking it. That's why he says with a sincere heart. There's no scheming. There's no plotting. There's no backbiting. There's no hidden resistance. There's no passive aggression. There's just sincerity. Then he says it again in, in, in the next verse, in verse 6. He says, not by way of eye service. It's a very literal translation of the original word there. Literally just is, is two words mashed together, eye and service. Eye service. You know instantly what he means. Just a performance for others while hiding your incompetence or laziness or whatever else is going on under the surface. Or as people pleasers, again, he says. And what he means there is not faking it for the approval of others or promotion, which would have been the easiest thing to have an easy life in, in an ancient household, would just be to smile and nod and always, do what the, always say the right things to your master while secretly, you know, secretly spitting in their dinner or, or, or just you know, not failing to do the bit of cleaning that they told you to do that's hidden and they'll never find out about, or whatever else was going on. He says, not as I serve, it's not as people pleasers. And then he says in the, in the seventh verse, rendering service with a good will. In other words, your, your attitude and your heart is sorted out. You put all this together and the picture becomes clear. Sincere heart, not as eye service or people pleasers, but with a good will. He's really interested in the heart attitude and posture of these men and women as they went about their working lives as ambassadors and representatives of Christ. Now, don't tell me that that doesn't in some way challenge you in terms of your work. It challenges all of us, doesn't it? Think about this, how... How easy it is to have an insincere heart in the workplace. You know, Paul's saying, look, you shouldn't just be kind and helpful and polite to others just as a way to, to get favor from others while secretly gossiping or secretly backbiting or secretly undermining the authority over you or manipulating or whatever it is that you do that, that really contradicts how you appear to others. You know, not as eye service, you know, as people pleasers. He's speaking there about the fact that you can appear diligent and willing and good at your job on the surface, and actually it's just an act, a performance. You know how this was. You know, many of you have got into new rhythms of working from home, and how easy it would be to just log on at 9 o'clock and then run down for breakfast after. You know, it looks like you're working. Or, or the, you know, the classic of wearing the shirt and tie on the Zoom call while you're, you're still in your boxer shorts from the waist down. You know, there's a way in which you can kind of perform the right things for the people who are watching you. Meanwhile, letting all kinds of things slip behind the surface. He says, with a good will. 
It's talking about application. It's talking about discipline. It's talking about care. It's talking about attention that's given to your work when nobody is watching because you actually care about what you're doing. Now, it seems to me that the challenge that Paul's bringing, it speaks to to all of you regardless of the kind of person you are. To, To those of you who are the ambitious overachievers, what does it mean for you to foster this kind of sincere heart? It means that You're no longer entering the world of work as a way to serve your own ends and ambitions. That's insincerity. I'm in this to get ahead. That's not the kind of sincerity Paul wants. Because the purity of motive and the willingness to offer your life in work for others means that you're not really doing it for yourself anymore. You're doing it for others. It also speaks to those of us who may be at the other end of the spectrum where you you feel more of a tendency towards laziness. And sort of checking out a little bit and just doing the bare minimum or covering up your incompetencies. And of course, Paul was speaking to them as well. Because ultimately, you're serving yourself in that. You're wanting an easy life. You're wanting a comfortable life. You're wanting to get away with the bare minimum. He's saying, don't you understand that when you engage in work, you represent Jesus? You know, I like to think that when Christ was a builder or a carpenter before he became a preacher... He was the best builder or carpenter in, in, in the whole country, maybe in the whole world, you know, because he engaged with work with the kind of passion and love that comes from a willingness just to apply yourself, that sincerity, that, that reality. And that's Christ's bar. I think that this should make Christians the best at what they do. Because, it's, you know, as soon as you bring in all the complications and the distractions of trying to, to play office politics or trying to get ahead or trying to perform or to appear good at what you do or trying to have an easy life or whatever it is that's your thing, it disrupts your ability to actually just do your work. But when you have that simplicity that, that the, these Christians were encouraged to have before God, just you're serving Jesus, friends. So do it in this way, this heart, this attitude. I think Christians should be the best at what they do. That you should stand out not so much um, ever for, for, for being incompetent, but rather because people admire you, that you're amazing. They can trust you. They can give you more responsibility. You're always trusted with the small thing. You always do what you say. And you always do it excellently because ultimately you know that's the sincerity Christ wants. He wants a servant heart. He wants a sincere heart. Here's a third thing that Paul talks about for these believers. Jesus wants you to have a worshipful heart when you go about your work. A worshipful heart. That your work is actually worship. I don't know any other truth that can give more meaning and dignity and purpose to your day-to-day life than this. Christ, Christ takes pleasure in the work you do as an act of worship to him. Think about your work. You may never have understood its spiritual significance because you've never understood it to be worship. This is where I think so many people struggle in the day-to-day. They ask, why does this matter to Jesus? Why does this matter eternally? The thing I'm doing is, is ephemeral, come and go, or it's insignificant, or it's unimportant, or it makes no difference to the world. Why does it matter? You know, if you're somebody who's, who's just a small cog in a giant wheel, just enriching some giant corporation, you may think, why, why does what I do matter? If you're designing contracts to protect already wealthy companies from 
from aggressive attacks. And, those, and, and you think, why does it matter? If you're someone who's teaching kids who don't care about learning, and you feel that you're getting nowhere and you're accomplishing nothing, you ask, why does it matter what I do? Or if you're cleaning the same floor 15 times a day. I was once, uh, I once did this in, in a, an American fast food chain restaurant. That was my job. I cleaned the floor in the lobby area, and 30 seconds later, it was dirty again, so I did it again. I did it all day long. That was my job. And of course, you can begin to feel the futility in that. I feel it for, you know, my wife talks about this when you're in early motherhood and you're changing the nappy 16 times in a day. You feel futile. It feels pointless, doesn't it? Just let them be dirty, you know. You, you could, you could, what does one nappy change matter? You know, so you can begin to feel, why does what, I'm, why does what I do matter to God? Of course, these are the kind of problems the slaves wrestled with, I imagine. The same issues, in the sense that they were, they, were, they, were, they were working to make rich owners even richer. The disparity between rich and poor was dizzying. And all their labor was just to make their already rich owners even richer. Or they were protecting the families of the rich and their wealth and their property. You know, they don't need protection. They've already got plenty. Why am I protecting them? Why am I putting my life and limb on, on the line here for them? Or they were teaching their spoiled kids because a lot of the slaves were teachers in the households to these children, these little entitled young ones. And it's like, I'm a slave, but I'm teaching you so that you can have a better life. Why should I? Or they were cleaning the same, you know, they were cleaning up after their feasts when the Romans would eat as much as they want and then vomit it all out everywhere. And the slave's job is to come in and just make sure things are clean and tidy so that the feast can go on as it meant to. You feel the futility in that. Why does what I do matter? And what Paul says to them again and again and again is your work matters because you're not just working for man, you're working for Jesus. In what you do, even though you're not missionaries and pastors and deacons in the churches necessarily, no, no, in the day-to-day work that you are doing, you're doing it directly for Jesus. He says it again and again. It's there in verse 5. To obey with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. He says it in verse 6. As bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. So you're a slave twice over, he's saying. Not just to the master who owns you, but ultimately you're a slave of Jesus. So your work is really for him. Rendering service with a good will as to the goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. He couldn't be clearer, could he? What does that do to you when you begin to enter into the workplace thinking, the work I do is actually directly for Jesus? Well, it infuses you with dignity and purpose and a sense of joy that everything you're doing, you're offering back to Christ as your worship to him. Everything. Nothing is, sac- is secular. Everything has a sacredness to it. The world is God's world. It's a temple in which you are a priest operating as God's servant in whatever small or great thing you do. Some of you obviously operate at the highest levels of society already or on your way there, and some of you will find yourself stuck in meniality and futility and frustration. But understand this, that Christ doesn't assign more worth to one than to the other and loves the worship that comes from you engaging in your work for him. 
It's not so much the what, as I said at the beginning. It's the why. It's the why. And friends, that puts, that puts a holiness into the day-to-day moments of your life. Punching numbers into spreadsheets or, or rearranging objects on shelves or whatever it is that you're doing in, with your time. Everything is holy. Everything is sacred. And this brings us to the last point, and I'll close. In all of this, Jesus wants you to foster a contented heart. You know, I think discontent is the spirit of the age, isn't it? Because there's always more you can go for. And no wonder. Because think of this. If you're not a Christian, if God is taken out of the picture, and this life is all there is, then of course there's a desperate desire and clamor to ensure that the thing you do with this life counts, that it means something. It had better mean something. It had better count. Because this is my one shot to live a meaningful life. And so we put this unbearable burden on work. Work has to define you. And it must have significance. And I must be a success at it. And I must have the rewards that give me a more happy and pleasurable life. Work has to do all those things or else you're a failure. That's the picture of the world when Jesus is taken out of it. And of course, then any obstacle, any resistance, any limitation on you is going to be a source of deep frustration. And these slaves were limited more than you know. They were not free. And some of you feel that you're not free because the world's against you, because it doesn't respect where you came from or the way you speak or you you don't have the right type of credentials or academic attainments or whatever it is and that can breed frustration how can I live a life of meaning and purpose when I'm not free to do what I want to do and no one respects or acknowledges my contribution to this world all of this is a godless way of looking at your life and your work the Christian starts with this acknowledgement the greatest work that needed to be done in this world was achieved by the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for us and rose from the dead Please don't overinflate your contribution to this world. <laughs> Jesus is everything. And he's Lord of everything. He doesn't need you, doesn't need me, doesn't need the things we do. So let's not put such an unbearable word burden on our work. That it has to define you. That it has to give you significance. That it has to give you success. It actually doesn't. Jesus has already achieved more than you could possibly imagine. And he offers you his righteousness as a, as a free reward of being his, his, his disciple. That's the most important thing about you, friend. And then, just to, to show you how gracious and lavish and loving he is, he then says, whatever work you do, when you do it in this way, as worship to me, I'm going to reward it. Whether it's great or whether it's small. It doesn't matter to me. I'm going to reward you with rewards you never earned or deserved. And that's how Paul closes it off here. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whatever good. And he was talking about the full spectrum of willing, sincere, worshipful service that these slaves were engaged in in the world. Whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or he's free. In other words, you can look at your life in the light of eternity. And even if you can't see the contribution you're making to the kingdom and the work of God, 
It doesn't matter. This is what we take on trust. And when you know you have that deep certainty, Jesus values me and he values what I do and he's going to reward it. What does that do to your heart? It settles you. It takes away the striving. It takes away the anxiety. It takes away the ambition. It takes away all the urgency to define yourself and assert yourself. And it replaces it with the sweetness of contentment in Christ. Of course, that doesn't make you a worse worker. We've already talked about that because what you're doing is worship. But it takes away all the negativity and toxicity that poisons our attitudes to our work and helps you to rest even as you work. Christ loves you and he loves you doing what you do. So offer it back to him, brothers and sisters, and experience the freedom and the joy of his smile over you as you work for him. Amen.